0: Welcome to Business Line's State of the Economy podcast, where you'll find insight, analysis and the story behind the numbers.
1: Hello and welcome to a new edition of Business Line's State of the Economy podcast. Today we have as a guest with us Dr. Rahul Walavalkar. Dr. Rahul Walavalkar does not need any introduction. Dr. Walavalkar has the long innings, almost decades he has been uh, in the with the energy storage, the battery storage industry. Rahul holds a PhD in engineering and public policy from the uh, famed Carnegie Mellon University. He also holds a master's degree in energy management from NYIIT. Rahul, welcome to a new edition of our Business Line State of the Economy podcast. Uh, this section is on energy and as we discussed, um, there could be no better person than you to take us down the road of how energy storage systems Battery energy storage systems are going on. Where does India stand uh, vis-a-vis the global countries like US, Germany and Japan? So so what is the current global
0: and domestic scenario with respect to energy storage systems? Classically, we used to say that in the electricity, you need to basically generate uh, right when there is a demand because there is no storage of electricity or no economic storage of electricity available at large scale. Although traditionally for more than century, we have uh, technologies like pumped hydro, which have been around, which have uh, uh, provided significant support for uh, uh, grid and for uh, uh, doing energy arbitrage uh, and providing capacity for a uh, large scale grid. Uh, but uh, towards sort of a uh, since 90s, because of the environmental awareness, some of the pumped hydro projects started getting delayed. And that's where I think this started becoming common to say that, oh, we do not have large grid scale storage available. On the other hand side, on the customer side, there are traditional technologies like lead-acid batteries, which have been used for electricity storage. Uh, In India, it is again common, we call it either inverter or UPS systems, depending on if it is for residential or commercial industrial customers. So uh, we have limited amount of storage, but when it comes to now grid-scale storage, uh, the advancements which have happened in last perhaps uh, decade or uh, 15 years uh, in some of the technologies like lithium-ion batteries or some alternate technologies which are now getting commercialized, That is opening up a lot and uh, that's a part where not just technology innovation, but a lot of policy changes have opened up this market because... Traditionally, what was happened was it was not that policymakers were trying to uh, sort of block energy storage. It was just that when the electricity market rules or the regulations were written, uh, people had not even anticipated that there is a possibility for storage. And that's where there were uh, basically gaps where uh, storage was not able to uh, properly get utilized in that. So I have been fortunate that I started working on this topic around 2004 in US, uh, uh, right when uh, the electricity markets were getting more prominent in US. And then there was an interest in exploring how some of the newer generation of energy storage technologies can basically utilize these market structures to capture multiple value streams. One thing which had changed very drastically is that uh, back in 2008, when first grid scale energy storage project started getting deployed, we were looking at capital cost of anywhere from like $600 to maybe $1,200 per kilowatt hour for different technologies, uh, lithium-ion batteries were at that time costing more than $1,000 per kilowatt hour. And some of the alternate technologies like flow batteries or sodium sulfur batteries, they had a price point of around $500 per kilowatt hour. So people were looking at lithium-ion batteries primarily for providing ancillary services where you need maybe one hour or less duration of storage. And looking at the sodium sulfur or uh, flow batteries for longer duration for six hour or uh, longer-duration storage as uh, options. Over the last 15 years, uh, lithium-ion batteries, because of its applications in consumer electronics as well as e-mobility, have scaled up manufacturing tremendously. It went from less than 10 gigawatt hour of manufacturing to now more than 1,000 gigawatt hour of manufacturing within a span of 15 years. And that had led to an exponential price reduction similar to what has happened on solar. And that's where now you see a lot more discussion about lithium-ion batteries in context of grid-scale energy storage. Uh, So it has been fascinating to see this journey of how these technologies are being uh, looked at right from the grid side as a part of a generation mix uh, to looking at transmission optimization, to looking at distribution side, uh, uh, deferral of upgrades, as well as looking at uh, uh, using the -the behind-the-meter storage which is deployed on the customer premises And also utilizing it as a grid asset. Uh, So it's a fascinating journey. So uh, Rahul, one small supplementary question. For you, it's almost been 20 years.
1: Within 20 years, you've been closely associated with the policy developments. Yes. Now you are a policy influencer. What is the change in the government mindset that has happened in the
0: last two decades when we specifically look at energy storage systems? Sure. So I'd say that out of the two decades, like first decade, I was primarily involved in shaping up policies in North American market, particularly in the US. The India journey started with creation of the IESA 12 years back in 2012. And now, uh, basically in 2013, uh, Ministry of New and Renewable Energy, uh, Dr. satish Niyotri was the secretary at that time. And he was a visionary secretary where he realized that that was a time when actually government had, was looking at uh, scaling up solar to 20 gigawatts and uh, he knew that there were plans for possibly scaling it up beyond 20 gigawatt and he realized that without storage this is not going to be possible so MNRE uh, uh, invited uh, me to be part of a standing committee which uh, he had set up for energy storage to develop the first energy storage roadmap for india and since then we have seen basically earlier energy storage was seen as a fringe uh, right even that time solar was also seen as a something niche technology which is mainly for its green attribute and similarly storage was also seen that storage is uh perhaps a very costly technology. So apart from, I think, Dr. Agnew three, most of the other policymakers had this view that it will take 10 or 15 years for US and Europe to commercialize these technologies. And they were absolutely right with that. But uh, the feeling was that India should start looking at these technologies after 15 years and then maybe 2030 or 35 would be the timeline when India can start deploying these technologies once they are like commercialized and commoditized. But I have seen this change, uh, especially with the Modi government where the focus started on solar manufacturing uh, and IESA took the initiative to work with Niti Ayok to bring to attention that with solar, perhaps we were a little bit too late to get on the manufacturing side. Uh, But storage was something where I think the rest of the world was also just catching up on uh, manufacturing apart from China and we need to start focusing on that. So we have seen this sort of a drastic change which has happened particularly in the last five years where there is awareness that India has the opportunity to become a global hub for energy storage, and with that, now almost 10 ministries from different uh, government agencies are involved in looking after aspects related to storage, especially because it is deals with both stationary as well as e-mobility applications. So, Apart from MNRE and MOP, which is looking at storage from the grid side of it, we have Ministry of Science and Technology, which is looking at from the innovation point of view. We have METI, which is looking at it from the control and power electronics side of it. Uh, we have um, Ministry of Heavy Industries, which is looking at manufacturing as well as e-mobility. Yeah, Ministry of Road Transport and uh, Ministry of Mining now looking at from the supply chain side of it. So uh, it's a quite interesting uh, development how the various government agencies are now looking at storage as a enabler for the vision, what Prime Minister has said for India. And it is very clear to almost all the people who know the system that without energy storage, The 500 gigawatt renewable is just not possible. So uh, that's where I think there is this realization. And now that renewables have become the lowest cost energy source, uh, and uh, it is clear understanding that yes, similar to renewables, the storage costs also are coming down with scaling up of manufacturing and deployment. There is a very clear uh, synergy emerging uh, that we need to start uh, deploying storage at a mass scale in India now we wanted to also, you know, talk to you about since you've been talking about lithium and other chemistries.
1: Lithium is something which has become the most favorite topic of discussion for investors and uh, energy sector executives. And so we wanted to understand with you about lithium, uh, you know, what is the availability right now globally and in India? And where is it going? How much India been able to, you know, secure Uh, Considering we read all these things about China controlling almost 70% of the supply chains, including processing, uh, excavation, could you take us down this, the lithium uh, scenario?
0: Sure. So just uh, one thing I would like to clarify is that because what happens is that traditionally we are used to uh, lead-acid batteries where almost 85% of the weight of the batteries is lead. So many times, again, I know that you are familiar, but just for some of the readers who may not be familiar, when you think about lithium-ion batteries, Lithium ion is the, basically the electrons which are basically transferring the energy from anode to cathode. But if you think of all the materials which are being used, lithium is less than 5% by weight. Uh, so depending on the chemistry, it could be 3% to 10% of the uh, weight uh, across uh, different things in terms of the cathode, electrolyte and other things. When you talk about supply chain for lithium ion batteries, it is not the question only about lithium. There are almost around 9 main um, materials which go into it which include copper and aluminum for current collectors to having graphite for anode or there is now also there is a uh, work going on on uh, adding silicon to the graphite for increasing the density of the batteries and then on the cathode side depending on which chemistry you are doing there are almost 10 different type of chemistries you can have different materials including nickel manganese cobalt iron phosphate and other varieties quite diverse set of uh, uh, minerals and metals what is required for making lithium-ion batteries. And in terms of the supply chain, there is a well-established global supply chain for the raw material, where multiple countries have these minerals available. Uh, One good part is uh, Australia, which has now emerged as a very critical partner for India, also through Quad as the national relationship we have. And uh, we also have recently signed FTA with Australia, uh, particularly Western Australia, which is a hub for a lot of mineral and mines, uh, It has emerged as a very strong partner for India and uh, uh, they have almost access to all the uh, raw materials. The bottleneck is more on the processing side of it. That's where China has captured it. It's not that China has captured 90% of global mines. China has 70 to 90% of the processing capacity for these raw materials to get converted into the battery grade materials. And that's a part where I think China will continue its dominance, but there is a growing understanding, especially after COVID, that we cannot have the similar supply risk coming up on dependence on any region. So now Europe, US and many other countries are looking at establishing these processing industries. And India is being looked at as a possible partner for that. So we think that India has a very strong capability on the chemical engineering side. There are many strong conglomerates in India uh, who have capabilities and many of them have been dealing with uh, these materials uh, for uh, different uh, industries. Now they just need to upgrade their technology and start like getting to the battery grade technology. So earlier there are many companies who have been dealing with say lithium salt processing in India for pharmaceutical industry. But now same companies are uh, partnering with global technology partners and now upgrading their facilities so that they can also deal with the battery grade material. So those type of things are happening. And uh, also India, traditionally, India has focused in terms of the minerals and mines on Basically, just coal and iron or uh, aluminum source of uh, mining. Uh, But uh, three years back, actually led by IESA or four years back, uh, the policy was changed where earlier lithium exploration was combined with atomic minerals. And as a result, there was actually ban on exploration of lithium in India. Uh, So just four years back, India had started exploration. Uh, based on uh, some of the inputs what Mr. Tarun Kapoor, who is an energy advisor to Prime Minister, he mentioned at IESW, India has currently explored less than 10% of the potential sites for lithium and other related minerals. And we have already found out four states where there are uh, lithium uh, reserves are available. Now, doing the commercial validity and techno-commercial will typically take 5 to 10 years. Government is looking at fast-tracking that And we may start seeing something in maybe three to five years. But uh, at least based on all the work what IESA has done, we think that we do not need to tie the lithium-ion battery manufacturing industry to just domestically available sources. I think in the long run, definitely we need to explore the domestic sources and the recent finds in Rajasthan, in Jammu and Kashmir, in Karnataka, as well as uh, eastern part of India, all are very exciting news. And we should definitely try to develop that, but we don't need to wait for those uh, discoveries to uh, build the industry because we have partners like Australia, South Africa, even Latin American countries have signed uh, bilateral contracts with Kabil, which is a separate entity created by Ministry of Mines for securing some of these materials. So uh, we have a lot of good opportunities right now available in this.
1: Before I ask you about the ecosystem and all, I want to do another question that a lot of our, you know, readers and audiences have said that what are these different uh, chemistries because, you know, on uh, discussions, experts like you talk about that lithium is one chemistry, sodium is another because Indian government also talks about that. I think six, eight months back, the entire top leadership in the government was talking that, you know, we've lost the game on lithium and we need to, you know, scale up and get
0: other things. So could you take a uh, get uh, explain this? What is this whole scenario about? See, uh, so again, in terms of the chemistry right now, if you see the battery rate, uh, so there are two ways in which uh, people are looking at batteries. So one is in terms of finding materials which improve energy density and which can help you enable make more compact batteries. And many times people think that it's just for having premium batteries for uh, electric vehicles or for consumer electronics or for drones. But actually what happens is that if you have batteries with higher energy density, then fundamentally you need lot less raw material right so that actually battery could also be a cheaper battery so from that point of view there is a lot of work happening on looking at materials to try to improve energy density of the batteries just to give you an idea uh, uh, some of the traditional batteries which have been used in the industry like lead or the nickel and other based batteries they typically have energy density of anywhere from they, uh, or flow batteries they have anywhere from maybe 20 kilowatt uh, hour per kg ke- 20 watt hour per kg to maybe 60-70 watt hour per kg as an energy density even uh, 20 years back lithium-ion batteries also had energy density of maybe around 80 to 100-120 watt hour per kg but with a lot of advances in the material side what has happened is we have now the leading uh, chemistries right now in lithium-ion side offer energy density of anywhere from 200 to 300 watt-hour per kg and there are already improvements which are being done which can take this energy density to 400 to 500 watt-hour per kg. That means that fundamentally you need almost one-fifth of the material what was required for the batteries which had less than 100 watt-hour per kg kind of a energy density and when you start looking at application side particularly on the transportation side applications that means that you can actually have a lot less weight being carried in the for the battery in the vehicle that means the uh, efficiency of the vehicle carried itself increased. so instead of having six kilometer uh, per kilowatt hour range you could maybe go to eight nine or even ten so you can need actually smaller battery for having same range or you can have longer range for same battery so a lot of these type of uh, improvements are happening the other side of the work which is happening is uh, in terms of looking at more earth-abundant materials. So that's a part where sodium and some of the other chemistries, including iron and other, are being uh, looked at because those materials are just in abundance and right now the scale at which lithium-ion batteries are scaling up, uh, you sometimes see commodity uh, price is similar to what happens with oil or with gold and other things. Uh, so uh, to try to diversify from that, there is a lot of work happening on sodium and other batteries. Now, uh, I think in terms of the opportunities, there are multiple chemistries which can uh, coexist. Uh, the market is just growing so exponentially that uh, there is no need for considering that it's going to be only one battery, right? Uh, for example, even last century, lead acid has been there, but at the same time for different applications, nickel metal hydride, other chemistries uh, have coexisted along with that for specific applications of nickel cadmium or others. Similar thing will happen where different applications will choose right technologies. I think sodium ion is an exciting technology. There have been earlier technologies like sodium sulfur, which are a different class of batteries. But now when people talk about sodium batteries, they are basically talking about same form factor and same manufacturing process as is being used for lithium ion battery, but just using different materials for cathode and anode and use it uh, for sodium-ion battery. Uh, so uh, because of the abundance of the material, there is a very strong interest, but we'll have to wait and see how fast this technology is commercialized and uh, how, how it uh, exists. So right now, most of the experts believe that at least for next 20 years, lithium-ion will be dominating the world in terms of the applications, uh, but that doesn't mean that it is going 20 years for sodium ion to commercialize we do expect that within actually next five years we will have commercial grade sodium ion batteries the key part which will determine how much sodium ion batteries will take market share will depend on if the existing lithium ion battery uh, manufacturing can start manufacturing sodium ion batteries or do you need a different manufacturing to be set up because if you have to set up large scale manufacturing from scratch then it will take more than 20 years for any other technology to catch up with lithium-ion because right now lithium-ion battery manufacturing is around 1 gigawatt hour and it is expected to get to 5,000 to... 10,000 gigawatt hour within next 10-15 years. Any other chemistry which comes in, it will need at least another 20 years to get to like a few hundred gigawatt hour scale manufacturing. So that's our expectation right now. In terms of India sort of being late to lithium and forgetting about it, I think that would be a huge mistake because India is not not late, right? India had a lot of R&D capabilities and facilities. We have almost six national labs which have been working on lithium-ion research. Uh, there are many people of Indian origin who are leading lithium-ion battery work in um, the global companies. Uh, uh, so uh, there is no need why we should be afraid of some of the other companies. There are startups right now being developed in US, Europe, which are starting with 510 companies and they are, have aspiration of competing with the uh, current world leader. So I think India, we have that capability and we should not concede before the match starts we should play and then we will see how much we can do. I think it will take a lot of time for India to be like a in top two or top three in the world in terms of the manufacturing. But at least if we can aim for 10% market share in the manufacturing and supply chain in next 10 years, I think that is a good starting point because then we can build on that in the next decade and then try to get to the top three. But it requires a lot of hard work and a lot of coordination across industries for India to have that chance.
1: Well, that's that's actually, uh, you, you spoken about, uh, hinted to our next question. We were going to ask you about the ecosystem, the stakeholders, because, you know, uh, the common things which we and uh, my colleagues have, uh, you know, heard from industry leaders, including you, is that there's a limited knowledge about energy storage. There are no clear business models and financing options. Three things which we have regularly heard from various platforms. Uh, Your recent IESA event, there was huge crowd and a lot of people, you know, a lot of conversations were revolving around business models, financing issues. How do you look at the domestic environment? Are these real issues which are happening with, you know, people who want to
0: get in here? No, so this is, again, uh, we have been talking about it for now uh, more than five, six years because uh, uh, based on how we saw... Uh, the market starting and the projects starting happening in US or Europe, right? Uh, these projects started happening when batteries were costing 700-800 dollars per kilowatt hour. So people were able to find out right business model and right applications where people started deploying these projects and now over the last 10 years people have gained experience. Same thing actually we wanted to do in India where actually through the MNRE energy storage roadmap which was developed actually back in 2015 there was a proposal for exploring VGF and uh, uh, trying to uh, uh, start deployment of energy storage in India uh, where we could have found out uh, more about not just technology right because many times the discussion about this ends up revolving around oh is the technology ready is there a next generation technology another thing But beyond the technology, even if you consider technology as a black box, there are so many learnings which you can do when you are deploying the technology, when you are operating the technology, which I think we have to go through that learning curve. Uh, The good part now is that, again, uh, this is an area where with some of the regulatory changes, where for example, now Central Electricity Regulatory Commission has recognized energy storage as a separate asset class. They are allowing energy storage to participate either as a generation asset or transmission asset or distribution asset. As well as now, there are things like ancillary markets are also expected to start soon. There are financing issues are also getting uh, resolved. World Bank is now giving uh, financing uh, to uh, SBI, similar to what State Bank of India did for rooftop solar Uh, for uh, uh, low interest financing, Uh, there are uh, private side, there are agencies like uh, IFC are also looking at uh, financing uh, commercial industrial deployment and we are seeing now also a lot of private equity players uh, uh, getting interest into this deployment because the good part is India actually has a much better value proposition for these storage systems because if you see right now, right, commercial industrial customers in India typically pay more than 10 rupees per kilowatt hour for purchasing electricity from grid now they can deploy rooftop solar or they can have captive solar and that cost is uh depending on the location and depending on the size anywhere from three and a half rupees to five rupees they can easily now add storage to that and have a levelized cost of less than eight rupees for re plus storage so now the challenge what happens is people say oh solar is uh, available for three and a half or four rupees. Uh, if re plus storage is eight rupees, that is too costly let's wait for another five years for the cost to come down while not realizing that you are actually paying right now 10 rupees or 12 rupees for every unit you are purchasing so if you can start saving two rupees why do you want to worry about saving four rupees later on You can obviously do that. You can increase the size of the project. You can add more renewables. You can do a lot of things and you can do it. So that's a part where I think customer education is also required. And this is the area where somewhere I think I feel, uh, I don't know what is the solution, but uh, traditional energy management industry also has suffered from this, where most of the businesses are happy with investments, which can give them 13%, 15% or 17% ROI but when it comes to investing into energy saving or investing into this RE plus storage, suddenly they want three-year payback. Now, three-year payback and 15% ROI doesn't equate to the same number, right? So uh, you can easily finance a project which has a seven-year payback Uh, and you can be very easily happy with that. So that's why uh, you saw the strong focus on the business models because this is the part where I think we as a country are leaving a lot of money on table. And we are it's not that uh, uh, right now storage is not cost-effective or storage is not ready. It is just that I think we need to create this awareness and that's why as IESA, we have been uh, organizing uh, various uh, uh, customer-side meets called ESS meets where we go to different tier two, tier three cities where people are consuming more than 500 hours of diesel each year for power quality or reliability aspect, as well as there are opportunities for deploying uh, RE and storage assets and try to create that awareness. But again, uh, I think this podcast and similar awareness, I think from the general media will, I think, help us uh, uh, create this awareness faster. But I'm very much convinced that the business case will keep on getting better year by year but it's like your cell phone, right? You are not going to wait for purchasing a cell phone for two years because you know that in two years you are going to get a better cell phone. You will start using a smartphone right now. You will take the value from it and in two years you may replace or you may go for a a new cell phone or same thing with laptop. Same thing needs to be seen for this rather than waiting because if you are waiting, then you are leaving money on the table and you are just uh, increasing and it doesn't... uh, Basically, make the life easier for even DISCOMs. Because for DISCOMs, the way the load shape is changing, where the peak load is increasing at a much faster rate than the off peak rate, if energy storage is not deployed on the system and if you do not start balancing uh, uh, your load, uh, then actually discoms need to invest a lot more in the distribution upgrades, in transmission upgrades, uh, lock in more uh, supply for uh, peak power and that means investment in uh, thermal plants which will operate only at 30 or 40% PLF. Traditionally in India, NTPC and others have finance uh, thermal projects with assumption that they are going to have it. 50% plant load factor or utilization factor. Whereas now we are seeing many of these thermal plants do not have even 50% uh, PLF and it will go down to possibly 30%, uh, especially for the picker plants or lower lower than that. So we can avoid a lot of these stranded investments and actually reduce the overall burden on discoms as well. So there is a good win-win possibility here. And uh, we hope that with some of these new business models and uh, regulatory changes, we will start seeing this uh, very soon. The
1: next question is again about government. So, you know, government has this production incentives scheme, the FAME scheme, so sort of manufacturing subsidies. So I have uh, this question in two parts. So the first part is, is this enough or do we need more? Number two is that uh, USA has come out with another manufacturing subsidy, which for clean energy is around $369 billion, which has skewed the investor landscape
0: and might have implications for India. Yeah. Your views on both these parts. So again, this is a slightly tricky question, right? Because again, uh, from the manufacturing company's point of view, more incentives are always welcome. At the same time, we do feel that I think in India, we have found a good balance in terms of the demand side incentives and manufacturing side incentives. To some extent, like some of these incentives are given. For example, the FAME incentive is given to make electric vehicles more affordable for the consumers, uh, whereas the PLI uh, incentive is provided so that the manufacturing can be more competitive and the Indian manufacturers who are starting uh, at a much smaller scale than the global competitors, they can compete with the imported products and uh, have a good chance of scaling up manufacturing. So Both are serving slightly different purpose, uh, but ultimately both will uh, basically accelerate the adoption of energy storage in India. Do we need more? I would say that actually my view is that as a student of public policy and economics is that in India, we have to do more with same amount of money, right? We cannot start competing with Europe and US on matching dollar by dollar, the amount of subsidies that those governments can uh, uh, throw to the industry. And at least as a student of public policy, I've seen most of the time, those uh, just throwing money at the problem doesn't solve the problem. In fact, it just ends up creating a lot of distortions in the market and create more challenges. So my view is that in India, we need actually a more stronger focus on demand side activities. Like for example, one of the requests what we have for Ministry of Power and MNRE is to come up with a very clear storage uh, target, similar to what was done for solar and other things. Because just having that clear year-by-year target, not just a target for 2030 or 35 but having a year by year deployment roadmap, that itself will actually uh, accelerate the market quite a lot because then companies will have very clear understanding of what is the potential uh, procurement which is happening here. Similarly with electric vehicles, uh, one of the strong recommendations what we had was that uh, government need to start looking at channelizing the incentive to sectors where you need less money, right? For example, you cannot just make EVs cheaper for everyone. And then let people who are driving, say, 10 kilometers per day and just make EV cheaper for them because that is perhaps not the best use of public money. The best use of public money is like what what we started doing with public transport or other things where we need to identify actually uh, uh, vehicles which are being used most. Because that's where the electric vehicle starts offering the better uh, t- total cost of ownership sooner. And you will need less amount of incentive for creating that market. And as the market starts developing, as the prices start coming in, you can keep on going after more and more uh, segments. So that's one of the recommendations what we have. There are things, other things which are there is there are business models like, say, battery swapping for electric vehicles. Now, unfortunately, what has happened is that there are a lot of distortions in the way it is looked at because battery swapping as a service suddenly attracts 18% GST versus vehicle with a fixed battery is at uh, 8%. So those type of distortions we need to move, And uh, we need to also make sure that if you are giving Incentives for someone to buy a vehicle with batteries and similar incentives available for someone who is maybe buying a battery on behalf of a user. So those if distortions are taken off. We can actually see a lot more adoption of uh, these uh, uh, vehicles in the segments where it is more uh, uh, economical and more profitable. On your recommendation to MNRE where you
1: were asked for our elect- uh, energies manufacturing uh, roadmap. Uh, is it same with uh, till FY '28? Like the government wants to uh, scale up fifty gigawatts every year. Uh, till FY '28 they have a plan. And essentially, I think we read about fifty gigawatts is the energy storage that is required. So, have you made any suggestions of annually how much uh, battery storage we will require till FY '28 to match this? Because
0: grid stability will become more crucial. It is now, and it will become more crucial going ahead. So right now, basically, we did a study last year, which was released along with the Ministry of Power. that time, the Joint Secretary, uh, Mr. Ganesham Prasad, uh, we had worked very closely with him. He is currently the chairperson of the Central Electricity Agency. And the recommendation, what we provided was that for meeting the 500 gigawatt renewable deployment, India needs at least 160 gigawatt hour of uh, stationary storage deployment by 2030. So this is a cumulative between 2023 to 2030. So it could start with like maybe 5 gigawatt hour per year now, and then it will go up to where sort of towards the end of it, it would be 30, 40 gigawatt hour a year for stationary application. The 50 gigawatt hour number, what you're referring to is that is related to the PLI, which is for the manufacturing capacity. And that again, as IESA, we feel that that is just a starting point for kickstarting the industry. Already, there is a discussion from Ministry of Power for having additional 25 to 50 gigawatt hour of uh, PLI for stationary storage. There is additional uh, 5 gigawatt hour of niche battery storage, uh, which is being also being explored by DHI, which was already approved by cabinet as part of the original PLI. There will be possibly more uh, uh, non-PLI manufacturing will also get set up in India. So our expectation is by 2030, the demand annual demand in india is going to be more than 150 160 gigawatt hour so we think that 50 gigawatt hour is just a starting point and we should be aiming at somewhere between 100 to 130 40 gigawatt hour of domestic manufacturing per year by 2030 so uh, last
1: question we dis- you discussed it in your uh, uh, last answer uh, we we'll have 500 gigawatts of uh, non fossil fuels Now, right now, grid storage, uh, grid stability has become crucial issue. Uh, So what is happening in Gujarat is rooftop solar is working very well in Gujarat, but we are having grid shutdowns because they're not able to integrate it with, uh, you know, round the clock uh, pole fired power. Uh, And and this is a, this is a peek into what can happen if you don't have grid battery storage. Mr. Uh, Mr. Singh has said it as as many uh, events that, you know, we cannot work even green hydrogen for green hydrogen production, we will need energy storage. Just your thoughts on how this, is it achievable? And uh, do you think how critical it will be? Considering our uh, temperatures are rising and energy demand is almost rising at six to seven percent per annum.
0: No, so I feel that uh, there is no way of uh, getting to 500 gigawatt or even I would say 300 gigawatt of uh, renewables uh, without having substantial amount of storage. In fact, the way we have suggested is that uh, we need to actually just get away from this 2 rupee, 1 rupee solar and other thing. Because ultimately, if you see the delivered cost of energy to consumers is starting to on an average touching to 10 rupees except for the low-income household which are getting subsidized power. Like in Maharashtra, now even a residential customer... If you're consuming more than 300 units per month, it's paying more than 12 rupees and someone who is consuming more than 500 units, which may very well happen if people have electric vehicles and they are charging it from the same meter, uh, then you are suddenly going to have more than 14, 14 and a half rupees power. So I think we have already started seeing there are many tenders which Seki has uh, uh, explored in last uh, year, year and a half. Where RE plus storage as a peaking power, not 24 by 7 power, but RE plus storage as a peaking power, which is I think the most essential need right now, where you can use maybe a four hour storage twice a day or one and a half times a day for six to eight hour kind of a storage uh, and use it with both uh, uh, solar and wind Uh, that can actually have a levelized cost of less than six rupees if you're deploying at a very large grid scale, or if you're doing it at a distributed scale, then it could be 8 rupees. And again, I understand 8 rupees is a premium, but you are comparing that with 12 rupees or 14 rupee and that's where we need to identify those opportunities and start using it we are seeing right now actually a distortion being created because of all these ists waivers which are being talked about right uh, we are seeing now many states are which are especially renewable rich states are talking about renewable deployment of more than almost 3 to 4x the peak demand of the state just because there is a ists waiver and it is assumed that someone else is going to take care of the transmission uh, buildup and a transmission cost. Now we do not need to do that because if we do that and if we just build like a three times the peak demand of an entire state for just solar evacuation, that transmission capacity is most likely going to get utilized less than 10% a year. Now, yes, transmission is a cheaper on a per kilowatt basis, but not if you're using it for 10% utilization factor. So you can start looking at actually storage in an integrated fashion across the value chain and actually optimize investments in your generation, in your transmission, in your distribution upgrades. And that's where actually the overall economic benefit comes in. And uh, I think there is an increasing awareness at MOP and uh, MNRE as well as uh, CEA, CERC and other agencies. So... Um, uh, we hope that the talk will get followed with uh, real projects. Uh, the biggest urgency right now we have is, uh, we cannot keep on just talking about large projects, two years, three years, five years down the line. We need to start building these projects right now. We should have been building many of these projects three years, five years back. Unfortunately, we have built just a handful of the projects in the last five years. Uh, so we need a lot of uh, capacity building. And that's where the IESA, we are also working very hard on creating IESA Academy for training and skill development because this is again another area where i think we as a country need to do a lot of work uh, because these are new technologies some of the operating practices are different uh, the safety and other issues are different the way you optimize the system or with the storage devices is different so you need to do a lot of capacity building and already as isa we have trained more than six thousand professionals in last two years uh, using isa academy and we are partnering with many other associations to try to Take that skill development to the next level, but uh, I think we can definitely do that. It's an exciting time, and uh, I'm pretty sure that in next five years, India will emerge as a global hub for RD manufacturing, as well as adoption of these technologies. And policies like green hydrogen is just creating bigger market. Sometimes people feel that oh, is green hydrogen going to compete with batteries and other thing? But I, the way I see it is, green hydrogen is actually helping us decarbonize additional sectors, which just renewable energy and storage cannot do on its own like fertilizers, steel and petroleum and uh, other sectors. So uh, that is actually going to create more need for storage because uh, even for electrolyzers to be operated uh, more efficiently, you cannot operate those on a 20-30% PLF with just renewables. So you need RE plus storage to have at least 60-70% kind of a PLF for electrolyzers to have optimal cost of green hydrogen. Thank you so much Rahul. Thank you very much.